Today we continue our series in Title Seven. In the second and third chapter of the book of Revelation, we find letters that Jesus writes to seven different churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And each letter is written to a specific church in a specific situation. But Jesus, in these letters, always offers us an opportunity. He says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's what we've been doing, is not only looking at these specific churches and what's going on there, but how can we apply the truths that Jesus gives to them and into our own church and our own lives uh, as well. If you've missed any of these, I'd invite you to listen to them on our website or you can listen to them also on our mobile app. The, the other day I was going to Steubenville, Ohio, and that's a whole nother story. So I'll just, put, just give that information to you so you can put the next statement in context. I was traveling north on Pennsylvania 18 in Washington County, PA. And as I was driving along, I happened to drive by a, a very large brick church. And this brick church had obviously been closed for a number of years. Probably it was a beautiful church at one time. Probably had some beautiful stained glass. But where the stained glass used to be, it had all been bricked up. And so it made me think, well, I wonder if, if they had to to maybe sell the stained glass just to keep the church uh, alive for a little bit longer. But then, who knows, maybe they just got tired of their present location, moved to a new location, and, and built a new church. You, you really don't know. But as I drove on, uh, some more questions came to mind. If the church indeed just died and closed, what was the last service like? I mean, what was it like? What about the last one out? Who was the last one out that locked the door and, and maybe what went through his mind? Or what happened to the people that, that used to attend there? Did they go somewhere else or were they still living? Who knows? How did the community view the church's closing? Or did they even notice that it was closed at all? Were there signs that the church kind of ignored that maybe the church itself wasn't in very good health? Uh, at what point did they realize that it was actually dead? Or had they fallen asleep spiritually? And in the process of falling asleep spiritually, by the time that they woke up, it was too late. Or did they just die in their sleep? I know, I know, I know. That, that, that's a lot of questions. But trust me, when you're driving north on Pennsylvania 18, you create your own entertainment. <laughs> but just some thoughts. Is there anything worse than for a church to die. Actually, I think there is. It's for a church to remain open and maybe even be busy with activity when the people on the inside are spiritually dead and don't know it. it reminded me of the church at Sardis that we're looking at today in Revelation chapter 3. And verse 1 says this, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. But you are dead. Now, this church on Route 18, it had all the physical appearance uh, of being dead. But the church in Sardis was full of activity. They had the appearance 
of being very much alive. But, but Jesus says, I, I know your deeds. Now, he doesn't elaborate on those. But by him saying he knows their deeds, I mean, obviously, there was some activity going on there that Jesus could observe. But apparently, the people in Sardis, in spite of the activity, were not alive in their spirits. They may have even had the people in town fooled. They may have even had the people in the churches in the other parts of the province fooled. But they didn't have Jesus fooled. And there's a clue that maybe there's really something wrong at the church in Sardis. You notice Jesus doesn't say anything about them being persecuted. If you remember in the other churches that we looked at, there was some reference to them going through a particular time of persecution or, or, or struggle. And Jesus doesn't mention them being persecuted at all. Well, there's a good reason. It's probably because they're not being persecuted. And considering the anti-Christian climate of the day, you wonder, well, how are they avoiding persecution when all these other churches are facing persecution? Well, quite simply, they're not being persecuted because they're not doing anything to be persecuted for. In other words, they're, they're doing some activities... But they're doing nothing to distinguish themselves from any other civic group within the community that's doing some things. There's nothing that makes them stand out. There's nothing that identifies them as living godly lives. They're just another group. So there's really nothing to persecute them for. Jesus says, well, regardless of all the activity, he says, you're dead. Regardless of what other people think, Jesus says, you're dead. Because society will judge life based on physical activity. They look at the church and they go, well, there are things going on. They must be alive. But Jesus' assessment of life is based on spiritual activity. Just because a church has maybe a dozen members and is small... That doesn't mean that church necessarily is dying or is even sick for that matter. And just because the church is big and has a lot of people on Sunday morning and is doing a lot of things, that doesn't necessarily mean it's alive spiritually either. Jesus doesn't look so much at activity as he looks at your spiritual life. Is there spiritual life inside the church? So for us, how do we know if this church is a live church or a dead church? Well, once a year, the staff gets together, and we take a day, and we go away. And that's a time for us, a time of reflection and evaluation and, and planning. And this year, we did something we had never done before. We put together a church health report. We actually found this thing that you could go through and fill in all this information and everything and and it would give you some pretty honest answers about the health of your church so we spent some of our time away looking at this church health report now what did it tell us well it told us in some areas there's we're very healthy and we're growing it also told us that in other areas there's really been no change we're no worse off and we're no better off in some other areas, we found that there's a need for attention before things maybe get worse. 
And to be quite honest, there are a couple of areas that need surgery. But the key for something like this to work is you have to be honest with your answers. I mean, we could have made up, we could have made up answers, put in wrong numbers, made things look real good, sat around and, and talked and said, hey, everything is just fine. Now, trust me, I am extremely encouraged at the health and the growth. I really am. But I also need to know about the areas that need attention before they get worse. But we had to be honest in our answers. And we had to have the courage to read the answers for what they are. Now, as a body of believers, that's what the church is. I really think we're only as healthy as our individual members. The, the, the Bible talks about the church being a body, and each of us has a part in it. So we want healthy parts in our body. So a lot of times we look at the church as a whole, and, and we are as a body of believers, but our health is dependent on the individuals. So what about you? Look at the church at Sardis, and they were busy with activity, and so we looked at our church and saw some things. And so what about your own life, though? I mean, what about your own spiritual life? What, what assessment would, would Jesus give you of your own spiritual life? Well, the way that you find out is to have the courage to be honest about some of the areas in your life. So here, let me just give you some, some ideas, some things to get you started maybe uh, to assess your own spiritual health. So are you in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ? I mean, an honest-to-goodness, growing relationship where noticeably you are growing in your faith. Not only do you notice it, but other people notice that you're growing. Not just that I go to a life group every week. That's good if you do. But just showing up is not growing. Are you really growing in your relationship with Jesus Christ? Another is, what fruit can you point to that's being produced as a direct result of your walk with Christ. We're supposed to produce fruit as believers. So not as a way of pride, but, but what could you hold up and say, this is the fruit that's come from my walk with Christ. This is it right here. How intentional are you about demonstrating and sharing your faith with others? Are you intentional about the way that you live your life outside of this building? Are you intentional about being very conscious of, of the way you act, of what you say, and of what you do, and to make sure that it reflects Christ in everything that you do? Uh, are you open and willing when, when people ask you about your faith to openly share with them? Another question, are you performing acts of service motivated by love, or are you just busy with religious activities? There's a lot of busyness that goes on, not just in our lives, but also in our, our lives as believers in Christ. And it's important that we examine those activities to see if indeed they are motivated by love. Do you have a regular and intentional way that you study your scripture? Or do you just kind of, is it just kind of a hit and miss? I do it when I have time. I do it occasionally. And then following that, do you read just the parts that make you feel good? Or do you also read the parts that challenge you? How are you doing with your Bible time. 
What about prayer? Do you have a regular time or at least an intentional time that you pray? How, how much time did you spend in prayer in the last couple of weeks? That's an honest, you know, you can sit down and probably figure that out if you wrote it down. Um, giving statements for the church came out last week. How does your giving statement look compared to the statement the same period, you know, last year? How are you doing in your, in your, your finances and in your, your generosity as it relates to giving to the, the ministry of the church? How many Sundays are there in a, in a year? 52. Look back at your calendar. How many of those Sundays, how many of the 52, were you here? Or in worship somewhere else? And how many of those Sundays were you off doing other things? How many of those 52 Sundays were you actually in God's house worshiping? Those are all questions that can give you, if you have the courage to give honest answers, those are all questions that can point to where you are in your spiritual life. And the question not is then, what assessment will I give myself, but what assessment will Jesus give to my spiritual life? Will it be a good assessment? Or will it be similar to the assessment he gives to the church in Sardis? Now, let's say you take the time to honestly look at your own spiritual life. And let's say it's not where it should be. Let's say it's not even close. Let's say you look at it and you say, well, really, in all honesty, it's kind of dead. Well, here's the good news. All is not lost because it's easy to look at this letter. In fact, I probably always did look at this letter in two ways. One is just it make you just shake your head and go, what was wrong with these people? And then two, it's easy to take this particular passage of Scripture and go on a rant about the church in America and how it's dying and all this. And you've probably seen some reports that have come out lately. Actually, I see this letter is a wonderful example of God's patience and, and his grace and the opportunity that he gives us when we fail to make things right. It would be so easy for Jesus to look at this church at Sardis and say, you folks are dead. <laughs> I'm done with you. You're dead. And moved on. But you know what? He looked at this array of death and he saw a faint pulse. Listen to what it says in verse 2 and 3. Jesus sees that pulse and he says, wake up. Wake up. He says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. I want to start with the last part of this, with the warning, where, where Jesus says, look, if you, if you don't repent, if you don't wake up, he says, I'm going to come like a thief, and, and you're not going to know when that time is. Now, it's dangerous to ignore that warning. It really is. Now, it's true in the health field. 
How many of you have seen a commercial? Here are the warning signs of stroke. Not only have you seen a commercial, you've seen it in magazines, you've seen it in all sorts of places on television. Warning signs of a stroke. Now, if you start experiencing those things, it's dangerous to ignore them. It really is. Because if you do ignore them, then what could happen is you could end up severely disabled or dead. There's danger in ignoring warning signs. Now, Jesus doesn't want us to ignore the spiritual warning signs as well. Jesus wants us to be aware of them. And when he says he's going to come like a thief, he's not talking about the second coming, but he's talking about rather judgment and the idea that, that when I come, there's just a little bit left, but you're going to lose what little bit you had. So he says, wake up before I come and do that. You know, Sardis knew exactly what he was talking about. Sardis was a tremendously fortified city. But twice in the city's history, the guards fell asleep and a foreign army scaled the fortress walls while the guards slept and overran the city. Not once, but twice. So the people in Sardis knew exactly what it was to be taken by surprise and to face destruction. But although Jesus will do it, Although Jesus will come like a thief, although he will do it, it's not something he really wants to do. Uh, every year, Dan Harbaugh and I go to the state football clinic, and the West Virginia Secondary School Activities Commission guy stands up there, and he talks to the coaches. And he says to the football coaches, he says, Look, we want your rosters in by this date. If you don't turn those rosters in by this date, you get fined $25. He says, but look, we don't want your money. We, we don't want your $25. We want you to get your rosters in. And Jesus, I believe, doesn't want to come like this. He will. He will, but he doesn't want to. He wants people to change, and the whole purpose of this is to get them to wake up. If Jesus wanted to come and do it, he wouldn't have bothered with this wake up and given them some, some ways that they could, could change things. But he will. But Jesus looks at this spiritually dead church. He wants them to realize that they need a spiritual awakening. And he also wants them to realize that they have nothing inside of themselves where they can manufacture the spiritual awakening. But he wants them to know that the one who rose from the dead has the power to make it happen. Now, he describes himself at the beginning of the letter, back in verse 1, that uh, he talks about the one who possesses the seven spirits and the seven stars. Uh, there's only one Holy Spirit, but the number seven demonstrates a fullness and a completeness that that spirit has. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives life to the church and life to individuals, and that's exactly what this church in Sardis needs. It doesn't need more activity. More activity has never brought a person back to life, has never brought a church back to life. In fact, Jesus looks at, at their works and he says, look, they're unfinished. He said, they're not complete. They're unsatisfactory. And, and why? 
Well, the reason is simple. The church was born by the Spirit of God at Pentecost. The Spirit came and brought life to the church and empowered the church. And when the Spirit is no longer a part of the equation, then the church loses its life and its power and it dies. And that's what was happening in Sardis. It didn't have a source of life. It didn't have a source of power. It had come disconnected. And when Jesus says to them, wake up, what he's saying to them is basically, you need to give yourselves back over to the Holy Spirit. It's the same with us. When he tells us to wake up, you know, if, if our lives are going downhill, if we did this evaluation of our spiritual lives and found out we're either dead or we're, we're headed that way, we need to get back to giving ourselves over to the Spirit because the Holy Spirit is our source of power. The Holy Spirit is our source of life. But he has some wonderful advice, not advice, some commands. Let's put it that way. He has some commands for those who would wake up. For those who would have the courage to wake up and to reconnect to this power source, here's what he says. If you become disconnected, he says, first of all, strengthen. Strengthen what remains before it dies. In other words, shore up what's still there. It's almost like rehab. It, it's not much good. It's hanging on by a thread. But shore that up. That, that's some place to start. That's some place to start to give you some footing, to give you some positive things that are going on in your life. Shore up what you still have. But then he says, remember. Remember what you have received and what you heard. Remember what attracted you to the gospel in the first place. Remember what it was like the first time you gave your life to Christ. Remember what it was like the first time when the Holy Spirit came in. Remember the first time. Now, we, we kind of look at the past and we say you shouldn't live in the past. Well, that's not what he's saying here. He's just saying remember what it was like. Remember that joy. Remember that, that feeling that you had. And that desire to just want to know more and more and more. Remember those things. And then he says to hold to hold tightly to the truth. First of all, you need to get back to the truth. They need to reestablish what the truth is and, and get back into Scripture. But not only do they need to get back to it, but they need to hold tightly to it and not be influenced by society, not being influenced by pressures to compromise. Hold tightly so you don't let your guard down. And then he says... To repent. It means to turn at once. To turn at once. Don't mess around with it. Repent. Turn at once. Do it now. Don't say, I'll do it tomorrow. Don't say, I'll do it the next day. There may not be a next day. Remember the thief part that I said you don't want to ignore that? Do it today. There's an urgency about it. Repent means to turn around and go in the opposite direction. In the Bible, when it talks about repentance, it's certainly a sorrow for wrongdoing, but it also includes that you stop doing the wrong actions and go in the right direction and start doing what God says is right. Repentance always involves making a change away from sin and toward God. So see, there's good news for you. 
If you see your spiritual life as either dead or dying or at least headed in that direction, and God says, look, I want you back. I want you to wake up. And here's how you can do it. you got to remember, you got to connect with the power source, the Holy Spirit. But here are four ways that you can get back on track. And I want you to do those. And you can do them today, and there's good news. There's good news. Even if the pulse is faint, you can reconnect and get back to being who God wants you to be. Now, not everybody in the church in Sardis uh, was dead. Not everybody. Some had stayed true. And and Jesus not only commends them, but he also tells them what's going to happen. In verse 4, he says, Yet, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. This verse clearly reveals what we've talked about already, that, that the Lord deals with the body of Christ, the church, as individuals. Jesus knows every person's heart. He knows every person's motivation. And he deals with each of us accordingly. And though he condemned a lot of people in Sardis for being dead in their faith, he says to those who have stayed strong in the face of opposition, he says to them, well, those who he actually describes them as those who've kept their clothes white or Yeah, kept their clothes clean. Now, it doesn't mean they're sinless. But what he's saying to them is they didn't compromise. They didn't give in. And he says to them that they've been found worthy in the eyes of the Lord. And he's promised them that they would walk with him dressed in white. Displaying a righteousness that they received only through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But... There's more good news. There's more good news. There's a promise here also for those who decided to strengthen or wake up first and then strengthen, remember, hold fast, and repent. There's a promise for you here too. He says in verse 5, the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. In heaven, he says, they too will be dressed in white, displaying the righteousness that they have received from the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only will they be dressed in white, but they will be assured of eternal life. Now, the part of this verse that says, I will not blot out the name of that person from the book of life. Some people take that verse and and they will say, well, this is proof that you can lose your salvation. But to do that is to read into this verse something that it does not say. And what they do is they turn an extremely positive verse into an extremely negative verse verse by trying to make it say something that it clearly does not say this verse is not a threat jesus is not threatening to remove people's names from the book of life but what he's doing is this is a word of assurance to those who are faithful that they are guaranteed a place in heaven and what he's also saying 
is that he will stand before God and the host of heaven and he will say, these people belong to me. There's a great quote. Bruce Barton writes, believers can have no greater reward than to stand in heaven with Christ and have him announced, they are mine. You see, Jesus promises eternal life to us who are victorious. Whether we are victorious because we stayed strong through the whole thing or we woke up before it was too late and made our way back and we're victorious. And to both, to both groups, those who stayed strong and those who failed and recovered through the power of the Spirit, Jesus promises the same clothes and the same assurance of heaven. Because we realize that perfection is not something that we are going to see this side of eternity. But there's great comfort. It's a challenge, but there's great comfort to know that the standard for us is to be faithful. That we will fail, but he offers us a way to come back when we do. Verse 6 says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I don't know a church that ever started where a bunch of people got together and they said, okay, we're going to form a church and we expect to be dead in five years. I don't know any church that started that way. I don't know any Christian who came to Christ, who gave their life to him, who started their walk with Christ and said, okay, well, you know, I expect to have fallen away from the church and from my commitment in about three years. Nobody sets out to do that, but it still happens. You know, there are Christians who begin their walk with joy and enthusiasm and determination, and we see them and we rejoice with them and we're trying to help them grow, and one day they just disappear, and we never see them again. There are churches that started out with this wonderful vision and this wonderful fervor and, and they were dynamic and, and, and all of these kinds of things and then they just died. What causes that? Well, I think Jesus has given us some ideas today uh, of what causes it. When we get disconnected from the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit is really not a factor in anything that we do, we do start to lose life and we do start to lose power. And we will die. But God, in his mercy and in his love, doesn't want that to happen. Jesus wants us to come back. And he gives us a way to do it. And he offers a promise to those who do it. So wherever you are in your faith, if it's strong, keep it strong. Strengthen it. If it's dead or near dead, you have a chance to come back. And God offers you that chance. Because none of us want to be that church on Route 18. Let's pray.